You're listening to the Forever on the Fly podcast. What's up, AV nerds? Welcome to episode number nine of the Forever on the Fly podcast. Number nine, number nine. Do you remember Do you remember that Beatles song? Yeah, it's absolutely awful. It's kind of a weird song. But welcome everyone to your bi-weekly dose of aviation, inspiration, education, and of course, entertainment. I am one of your hosts, Diane Dollar. And my name is Jose. We're here to get you guys hooked Hooked on on aviation. So really exciting thing happened the other day. I got my first pop-up IFR clearance have to land in Palomar. Oh yeah? I did. I did. Dope. Where? uh... I've been flying a little bit more fixed wing out of Long Beach and I was with my friend. He and I were trying to land in Palomar and it was IFR at the airport all of a sudden. A little marine layer moved right in. Which was really exciting. I mean, they made they made us hold. It felt like a million years. <laughs> you know, when you're going towards the final approach path and they just haven't vectored you to intercept it yet. And you're like, oh, man. Were you on a published hold or one that they made up? No, it wasn't even a hold. They just kept vectoring us in different headings. And <laughs> we were literally just doing circles. Gotcha. And, um, but yeah, every single pass, it was like we were getting closer and closer to the final approach path. And we're like, man, they still haven't vectored us to intercept it yet. We're to be holding here forever and uh yeah and lo and behold every single time just straight through the final approach course (laughs) dude when is this guy gonna let us in but i mean because everybody was getting pop-up clearances because all of a sudden it was ifr but it was really really cool you know experiencing actually flying through the clouds to land where i'm like wow i actually have to remember i need my visibility i need the airport environment in sight yeah. normal approach to landing you need your minimum never actually had to almost fly down to the minimums to land somewhere so that was like that was so cool yeah that's pretty cool that was pretty cool yeah and taking off and like punching through the cloud layer and getting on top i have this video on my uh, instagram uh, getting on top of the clouds there at the beach oh my gosh it was just it was gorgeous. Yeah. It looked like you're just flying into heaven. It was beautiful. Dang. I know. It's kind of like, don't go towards the light. <laughs> no, but, no, it was it was really, really beautiful. Uh, but anyways, guys, uh, that was my recent experience. So that was pretty exciting. I just wanted to share. No, that's pretty cool. Everybody. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's pretty badass. Our next guest is a YouTube star, an F-35 fighter pilot. That probably has had a lot more experiences punching through the clouds than I have. (laughs) And not only has this guy explored how fast, but how high he can fly. In this episode, Justin Hazard Lee takes us through his journey of becoming a fighter pilot in the Air Force, what it's like to go supersonic, his experience with the centrifuge, and G-Lock. We also go into his tips for better decision making, the importance of good debriefs, and we also get to teach him a thing or two about helicopters. School will be in session at the end of the episode. We're going to go over very briefly how to perform a good debrief and its benefits. If you enjoy the show, we always appreciate your love, your subscriptions, your downloads, your comments, and reviews. Love you guys, and thanks for listening in. Let's get it started. Justin Hazard Lee. Going through Mach 1.6, the whole thing was rattling. It was like out of a movie. <laughs> I'm Hazard Lee, and I'm forever on the fly. Hi, Hazard. Welcome to the show. I love your YouTube channel. I spent all day watching every single video on your YouTube channel. And let me tell you, 
I learned so much. That's awesome to hear. Thanks, Diane, for having me. It's a real pleasure. And yeah, I've been having a great time making those YouTube videos. Uh, Hopefully they've been improving a little bit. Oh, for sure. I like the mock tech one that you had. Oh yeah, I just released that one today. So like, what's it like to go supersonic in a fighter? And spoiler alert, it's nothing. You can't tell at all when you're going supersonic. I mean, the people on the ground definitely can, but you can't. Yeah, gotta hold your ear <laughs> eardrums. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> crazy. Yeah, we've done a couple of uh, interviews so far. Um, like we were talking about before we started, Rainwater is super cool to talk to pilots like you guys. Us, us being helicopter pilots, like we fly airplanes sometimes, but not a lot. And it's just opening our eyes to this whole other world of aviation that you know we've never been a part of. So it's really cool to learn about that, and uh, we're excited to bring that knowledge to our listeners. Yeah, if anybody hasn't checked out his YouTube channel, Hazard Lee. Justin Fighter Pilot. He's got a lot of really good information there if you're out there and you want to fly for the Air Force and kind of want to weed through a lot of the BS that's out there online uh, that's kind of hard to navigate. People like you who are putting a really simple, very good information videos out there is very, very useful. It's a great resource. So check him out there on YouTube. Can you tell us a little bit about the route that you took, your career? Where were you stationed? Have you been deployed a lot in your career? What is it like being a, a fighter pilot for the Air Force? Yeah, sure. So I went to the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs and graduated from there in 2009 and went to pilot training. In pilot training, you first fly the T-6, which is a, it's like 1,100 horsepower, high-performance prop plane aircraft. And it's, it's a blast. It's a lot of fun to fly. From there, I went to fly the P-38, so supersonic jet trainer built back in the 50s. It's uh it's, I have a, a model of it, but I guess this is just audio only. So it's uh, built back in the 50s, really aerodynamic, small engines. So it's high speed handling capabilities, pretty good, but terrible low speed uh, handling capabilities. So unfortunately, a lot of people have died trying to learn how to land that aircraft. Flew that for six months, went and flew the F-16, learned how to fly that out here in Phoenix, went on to uh, Korea. So Flew the F-16 Block 40 out in Korea for about a year and a half. Went to Shaw Air Force Base in South Carolina and learned to fly the F-16 Block 50 doing the wild weasel mission. So the suppression of enemy air defense where you're uh, taking out surface air missile sites. Deployed to Afghanistan in 2016 and then got selected to fly the F-35. Came out here to Luke again to learn how to fly the F-35 and now I'm an instructor and I'm in the reserve, so I'll be staying here for quite some time. Oh, wow. So tell me about the F-35 transition. When you went into it, was it something that you always wanted to do? Like, did you always want to fly the F-35? Or was it just something that you just kind of fell into and that was like available for you in the Air Force? So I would say I went to a red flag in 2015. And so red flags are these big exercises that the Air Force does. And we invite everybody from all over the world there. And it, it's pretty cool to see, like we'll fly up initial and you'll look down and it's almost like an aircraft carrier, just packed with aircraft. So it, it's awesome. And I landed and I was taxing to my parking spot and there were like two F-35s and they just looked weird. The pilots had um, carbon fiber black helmets. And I was like, that's that's pretty cool. And they had, they got a chance to fly in a couple of those exercises 
And I realized that the F-35 is the future. And so from then on, I was like, I definitely want to fly the F-35 and put that down as my number one pick to Luke Air Force Base in Phoenix. And fortunately, got it. Awesome. And when you did the training for it, I know you said it was a single seat aircraft. Essentially, you were just in the simulator, I'd imagine, like for the most part. And then your first flight was actually in the aircraft by yourself. Yeah, your first flight is in the aircraft by yourself. So they got the instructor out there on the wing. It's just like, yeah, you're doing a great job. <laughs> no. Talk to you on but like it, a... I mean, it's not too bad, especially for uh, experienced fighter pilots. But in 2018, we started having brand new pilots from, you know, UPT, undergraduate pilot training, showing up. And yeah, you could see, you know, they were a little bit nervous about transitioning from the T-38, which is just... You know, maybe like a, I don't know, a couple million dollar aircraft with like 4,000 pounds of thrust, I think. Those numbers are probably off to the F-35, the premier fighter, $100 million aircraft. And they're learning how to fly it, you know, by themselves the first time. Now, we do a lot of simulator stuff. Our simulators are great. We start off with like a month or two of academics then a month or two of simulators. And, you know, simulator technology is good now where it really prepares them for that first flight. Were there a and lot of performance differences between the F-16 and the F-35? Is it really superior to the F-16 in your, in your experience? So the F-35, you know, it gets a bad rap in the, the media, but that's because we were doing prototypes. So normally when you have a new jet aircraft, you'll build like 10 of them and just fly the wings off of them, figure out all the bugs, start production. But with F-35, we did something called concurrency where we collapsed the timeline. And so we knew those initial aircraft would have some bugs and we were going to have to go back and fix those. But what it gained us was a few years on the timeline. And so those initial jets, they had some issues. And when I came out here, I learned how to fly on some of those, some of those jets and they had some issues, but since 2018, man, this jet has skyrocketed. It's, it's kind of like your phone, like we got a software update to our jet and overnight, you know, everything was better. It unlocked the gun. We could pull nine G's, all kinds of different things like that. So it's, it's really software dependent and that 35 has just grown by leaps and bounds in, in just the last few years, but it's, it's a lot more capable aircraft than the F 16 in terms of learning how to fly it. You know, in large part, that 35 was derived from the F 16. So a lot of the controls are the same it really feels pretty comfortable to a F-16 pilot. Now the buttons do a lot more things. So it's like, you know, the, the HOTAS hands on throttle and stick on steroids. Uh, and I can remember it would take me about five seconds for me to translate my brain. Cause I was experienced, I was an experienced fighter pilot. So I knew what I wanted to do, but it would take me about five seconds to go from speaking F-16 in my brain to actually, you know, flying F-35. And it took me about a year to, to really develop that muscle memory. Cause at the speeds we fly, we're averaging closure rates of a mile every three seconds. And so five seconds is, is a long time. Wow, man, that's fast. <laughs> yeah, that's an understatement. Went 150 knots the other day. It was like 0.003. My bad, Diane. No, 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 it's it. okay. I was just, uh, yeah, just playing around. Go ahead. Uh, so when you were talking about like some of the problems that it had initially, 
Um, I remember reading about it when it first came out and some of the pilots, I don't know if it's true or not, where we're blacking out or there was, uh, um, I think a leak in their oxygen systems. Yeah. Uh, the O-Bogs. Yeah. Um, that stuff. And they were talking about it being over budget and all that, but like in your experience, like flying the aircraft, you said it's like night and day from like the first prototypes to now. So clearly they got that all fixed. Yeah, I mean, that 35 is a new technology. So like any new technology, it takes time to develop. It's called the technological S-curve. And I mean, we're probably all similar age. So thinking back to the Walkman, remember when the CD player came out? Like, <laughs> it was garbage. It had zero yeah. second anti-skip protection. I remember being on the bus, having to hold that thing perfectly still, <laughs> and it was skipping, and it was like $200, and it sucked. Yeah. But over time, they were able to, you know, work out bugs. Yeah. And I was just in time for, what was next? The, the iPod. And the, the iPod, iPod, same thing. It could, it was really expensive. The battery died, all kinds of different things. And streaming music came about. So that's like the F-35. It's a new technology. It takes some time to, to work out all the bugs. And also, we're kind of shifting in how we fight. So this happens every 20, 30 years. So if you go back to the jets and the... 50s and 60s, it was all how high and how fast you could go. So they all wanted to go like 60,000 feet, Mach 2.0. And then there was a guy named John Boyd, who I would encourage people to read his book uh, about him. And he was like, no, it's not how high and how fast you can go. It's how tightly you can turn and sustain that turn. And so you saw the F-16 be developed from that. And since 2005, it's really been another shift to fifth generation platforms, where it's about um, stealth, it's about having great sensors, sensor fusion, all kinds of different things like that, which, you know, it's tough at like an air show to showcase how well an aircraft can network, but it's, it is important. What what does that mean? How well an aircraft networks just for people who are listening, who might not know what that is, including me. Like how well they (laughs) all talk together. So I mean, I think the smartphone analogy is really good because somebody might say, oh, my screen size is bigger than, you know, your cell phone's screen size. But it's about like, you know, how it connects to the other phones. You know, if you have an iPhone, it's about like the ecosystem where you can just like airplay things and, and do all kinds of different things like that. So the jets talking to each other and being able to talk to other types of aircraft as well. Man, that's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Being able to to communicate, that's one of the most important things because that's a misconception that a lot of the uh, keyboard warriors have is that flying fighters is like a cage match or something like an MMA fight where you're sending out an F-35, one F-35 versus, you know, another enemy aircraft. Um, but it's not. It's more like a football team. So you have different players for different roles. And it's about how well you integrate together and communicating is a big part of that. The F-22 and the F-35, I know they're both stealth fighters, but what is the biggest difference, I guess, between the two? Because they're both, one I think came out like in what, 2006, 2010? I think it's around the time it came out. Yeah, I think uh, when IOC in like 2005. Right. So initial operating capability. Yeah, and then it was like, I know that they opened up to being able to sell the F-35 to some of our allies, but they haven't done it until with the F-22. Mm-hmm. Is, just, is, is that just because of like certain technology that we're kind of keeping to ourselves or 
what what's like the main purpose for that? So back when the F-22 came out, it was like a piece of alien technology. Like it just blew everybody away. It was amazing. Um, and the F-35 now, I think, has, you know, the F-22, what it's designed to do is to go in and be an air-to-air fighter and to dominate out there. So they had to actually come up with a new term, air dominance, instead of air superiority. Uh, you know, as an F-35 pilot, we're the new fit-gen platform. So we like to you know, make fun of the, the Raptor pilots and <laughs> legacy fiction. But the real thing is, yeah. you know, we're more air to ground based. We yeah. can do air to air. They're, they're highly biased towards air to air. So we really need uh, to when we're going in. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. You guys are just more multifaceted, I guess, in that sense. Yeah. Oh, sweet, man. So, yeah, you mentioned um, the development of the F-16, F-35 is really was revolving around like how high, how fast now we're going into how tight it can turn and how long you can sustain those G forces. Have you ever read the book, Jonathan Livingston Siegel? <laughs> no. I mean, that sounds familiar though. Yeah. By a guy named Richard Bach and he was an F-84 pilot, I believe. Yeah. He wrote this, it's like a children's book um, about a, a seagull who is tired of, you know, the normal, uh, day-to-day life of a seagull is just to fly just to get food but he wanted to see how high and how fast he could fly <laughs> and he reached different heights and different universes and it's actually it's a really cool book i love that um, what, what's it called again i'm gonna write it down jonathan livingston seagull yeah it's freaking great um yeah definitely yeah you can introduce that to your kid when they when he gets older so cute Definitely. by the way <laughs> adorable congratulations <laughs> thank on your, you on your baby yeah it's it's been it's been amazing to to be able to see him grow and you know it's it's cool to see how kids learn a new thing every day so it's it's been really life-changing little sponges I, yeah <laughs> <laughs> so how high and how fast have you flown speaking of of that um so the f-16 is service ceiling is fifty thousand feet um, it can go higher, but as a, as a pilot, they don't want us to go higher. Cause if we have a rapid decompression, we can black out. You can also get the bins. So something scuba divers are familiar with. So generally 50,000 feet is the service ceiling, unless you're wearing like a, pre- a pressure suit or a space suit. Um, so I've been up to 50,000 feet, uh, F 16. I can remember, the fastest I've ever gone was in Korea over the Yellow Sea going Mach 1.9, which was pretty fast, especially because those jets that we were flying were built in the late 80s. So going through Mach 1.6, the whole thing was rattling. It was like out of a movie. <laughs> and, you know, if anything happens at one point, you know, six Mach, that's because uh, velocity squares it's like 300 times the force of sticking your hand out at 80 miles an hour. So you stick your hand out of the car, you you feel quite a bit. This is 300 times that. So you really can't eject. Um, But yeah, 1.9 Mach, which is, uh, I don't know, maybe 1500 miles an hour. Man, you got to really trust your equipment. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Maintainers, big shout out to them. They they do an amazing job. They're, they're really the, the hardest workers out there and they're, you know, it takes like 10 hours of maintenance for every one hour we, we fly. So they, they do a lot of work on them. 
I would have been tapping on your shoulder to slow down. Slow down, bro. If I were in the backseat, I'd have been doing the same thing. <laughs> like, I'd be like, bro, bro, slow down. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, what? So what was the, the purpose? You were just out there testing it or... Um... What what would be the reason to fly that fast? I mean, other than yeah, so typically we we don't fly that fast at all. This was yeah. a uh, like FCF jet, so a functional check flight. So they had swapped out the engines and they needed a pilot to do a bunch of stuff. And the last step is a max speed run. And I was like, you got it. Wow. So what? That's sick. That is super crazy. But what's the limiting factor for how fast you can go? Like there's structural damage that can be done if you push it to a certain point what's the VE on that thing yeah so it's Mach 2.05 so i was trying to get there i couldn't so i took it up to fifty thousand feet max afterburner got up to about 1.4 mach and then bunted over 10 15 degrees nose low and the speed was ticking up i, I went through that buffet at 1.6 mach at 1.9 everything smoothed out it was pretty, pretty cool. You know, usually <laughs> you're just really busy on these missions, but this was one of those cases where like kind of time felt like it slowed down and I noticed like heat coming, uh, you know, from the canopy. And so I took my hand off the throttle. It had like a Nomex glove on it and I could feel heat coming from the, the canopy from the, the air resistance. So I was, I was going to about, uh, I think around 780 knots because it changes from Mach 2.05 to an 800 knot limit. And that generally happens around 35,000 feet. So if I had kept on going, I would have over overspeeded it from a knot perspective. Dang. Dang. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I couldn't even imagine just like you're the aircraft like shaking violently like that. You feel like it's going to fall apart, but you pushed through it and you said that it's, it started smoothing out once you got to a certain point, huh? Yeah. 1.9, everything smoothed out and, I think 1.6 is kind of like a known resonance node. Mm -hmm. Also, these aircraft are old, so they've been over-G'd, especially like asymmetric over-G's can cause, you know, some variance like that. So, um, yeah, at 1.9, everything smoothed out. Man, that sounds like a magical moment. Like you, you see, like you're you're going really fast, but everything slows down. One thing you really notice is your fuel is rapidly decreasing. Like I looked over... And it was showing 50,000 pounds an hour was my fuel flow because I was a max <laughs> afterburner. And, uh, you know, the jet, you know, this is a clean jet. It only has 7,000 pounds of gas. So, and I still had to go back home and have a, you know, buffer there. So yeah, you only have a few minutes in afterburner. And so I took it out of afterburner to mill power, which is maximum non-afterburner setting. And I remember the air resistance flung me forward and locked my shoulder straps and it actually took me like 50 miles to slow down below the Mach. Wow. Dang. Did you um, ever do the 9Gs on that aircraft, on the F-35? Have you pushed it that hard? All the time. Uh, yeah. More so on the F-16. But uh, yeah, the F-35 is rated to 9Gs. And yeah, that's um, that's a crazy experience to, to pull 9Gs, no matter what platform you're in. Because <laughs> right now I weigh about 210 pounds, 240 with my gear on. And at nine G's, nine times the force of gravity, that's over 2000 pounds of force, just crushing you into your seat. So you can't even lift your arms. You're just stuck. And, but that's, that's why we have the HOTAS hands on throttle and stick. We can do everything just, uh, you know, you know, glued to our seat. 
But yeah. the real issue is you can have a G-lock, G-induced loss of consciousness. That's where the blood is being pulled out of your brain into your extremities. And if you lose enough of it, it can make you pass out. So if you pass out, it's going to take about 25, 30 seconds for you to wake back up. And at the speeds we fly, we are going to impact the ground in about 10 to 15 seconds. So unfortunately, we've lost quite a few pilots to, uh, to G-locks. Have you ever yes. almost passed out before? I have. So when you are pulling G, you're, the first thing you lose is your peripheral vision. So it kind of shrinks down to by the time you're at nine Gs, it's like looking through a toilet paper roll. And most of the time I'm fine. So we, have to, we wear G suits. So you got to make sure your G suit is fitted properly. You got to make sure you're hydrated. So just being 3% dehydrated can reduce your G tolerance time by 15%. So staying hydrated. So yeah, there've been a couple of sorties where I just have not been feeling nine G's. And so, um, you know, just eased up and the thing you don't want to do is fight through it and end up, uh, you know, killing yourself through a G lock. Mm. Yeah. That's scary. That's that, I guess that's why you guys do that. Uh, what's that machine where you guys are in the testing and you're in that Center seat. Beach. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, is, that isn't fun. We have to do that generally twice in our careers, once to fly the T38 and that's the, I think it's like seven G's and then wants to fly the uh, F-16 or F-35, nine G's. And, you know, that that sucks because you're in this like little pod, you have no control over it, and they're just spinning you to death. And you get the leans in there. When it slows down, you feel like you're tumbling. And because everybody's going through this, the thing smells like vomit because a lot of people have thrown up in it. So you're trying to do all this in focus. (laughs) You know, while you're, you feel like you're tumbling and, you know, you're smelling vomit. Oh, heck no. <laughs> oh, God. I would have got on that seat and would have been like, nah. Nope. I'm going to be and you're nervous because, because if you fail, I think they give you one more chance. And if you fail that, then you're out. You can't fly. If you throw you up in there, do you, you fail? If you throw up in there, do, do they fail you? No, you just, you, if you push, if you throw up and you push through it, then good on you. Uh, you should be the next person. How do you, how do you tell them to stop? You're probably like glued to your seat. You're just like, <laughs> you have to just feel like no exactly. safe word. You're just a little <laughs> monkey in there and they're just spinning you to death. So it, it sucks. Oh man. I mean, they're talking to you. Yeah. They'll do it for like 30 seconds and then ease down. And then they'll, they'll talk you through what you're doing good, what you're doing bad. Um, there are different profiles, one where you're looking over your shoulder, all kinds of different things like that. But um, fortunately, I haven't had to do that since 2000 and I think 11. Oh, wow. Do your classmates see you as well? Is there like a big window everybody gets oh, to yeah. see you? Oh, yeah. Oh, everybody yeah? is looking at you, <laughs> making fun of the way you look. I can remember <laughs> our class went there and there was a colonel, so an 06. So I think if you're out of the jet for more than five years, you have to go back for a recall. And there's this experienced, badass fighter pilot. And he looked like he was about an inch away from just passing out. And so we were like, oh, geez, you know, hopefully that's that's not us. Oh, geez. No, nobody in my... <laughs> Sorry. It's like queen of dad jokes over here. <laughs> oh, yeah. Fortunately, uh, none of us passed out. But yeah, everybody is just watching you. And if you go on YouTube right now, you can type in like G- G-Locks, G-L-O-C, and you can see a bunch of people 
that are passing out and you do the funky chicken. So you pass out, they stop the centrifuge and then you're just like twitching as you wake up. So you don't want to wind up on a you know highlight reel like that. Do they get, uh, when you, if somebody does fail, do they get the opportunity to fly something else or are they entirely out of the flight program? No, they, they get a chance to fly something else. So they, a lot of money and time have gone into developing them and they're good pilots. They just can't handle the G's. So they'll go and fly something else. Um, like a, like a tanker C-17, something like that. Yeah. Some, something yeah. like that. And what about the rotor pilots that you guys have? Are those just washout jet pilots? <laughs> I don't know. We never see them. So we, once we go through pilot training, we just split off paths and we never talk again. So Got it. I, Got I don't it. know what happened to the, it's, it's pretty prestigious. A lot of people, want to fly helicopters. Um, so they go and do their, what you guys do. So I have no idea, you know, how you fly helicopters, but they go and learn how to do that. And then we yeah. never hear from them again. No, I hear you. It's just like, I know that compared to essentially the air force as a whole branch. Uh, I know you guys have few of them. It's not mainly your forte. Like no, we, we don't have too many, too many helicopters. It's not compared to, um, you know, the army or something mm-hmm. like that. You keep saying the word afterburner and a lot of our listeners might not know what that is. I got to learn what that was today through one of your YouTube videos. Nice. <laughs> during our interview with Rain Waters, he mentioned that a couple of times and I just nodded along like, oh, afterburner, that sounds crazy, <laughs> you know, but I didn't actually, you know, ask the question. Um, what is afterburner and what, when would you use that? Yeah, so the engines on our aircraft are low bypass turbofan engines they, they work similar to the way airliners do. They're just skinnier because when we're going supersonic, that's a ton of drag. So we want to make sure that they're skinny. The real difference is on the backside. So the backside, we have an afterburner or reheat if you're British. And so what we do is, so when the exhaust comes out, it still has 50% of the oxygen that is in normal air. So we can do something with that. So what we do is we spray fuel in there and we light it off and it creates a, like a 30 foot flame out of the back of the jet and it produces a lot of thrust but it also rapidly decreases your fuel so it's inefficient but it's uh it's uh, it's like boost got it so that you, you want you'd want to use that when you have limited you know space to take off or mm-hmm. um when you just need that extra get away from your enemy <laughs> Yeah, give yeah, someone give someone behind you a nice yeah. haircut. What's that? <laughs> so give whoever's behind you a nice haircut. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just leave them in the dust. So yeah, we'll <laughs> use afterburner for those takeoffs. Um, sometimes, so it depends. You know, we'll load up these jets, even though they're high performance aircraft. We'll load them up with all kinds of different things, and sometimes we need afterburner to be able to take off, or if it's a short runway, or sometimes like being you know in the desert whether it's the middle east or here in phoenix we have really high density altitudes which i'm sure you guys are really familiar with and so we'll, we'll use afterburner to take off and then anytime we want to max perform the, the jet um we'll we'll use afterburner and for all of our listeners out there who are non-pilots i know we have a couple of them i want to make sure that not everything sounds like gibberish in this podcast so really quick definition of density altitude so that you know what Hazard was talking about here. Density altitude, very simply put, is our pressure altitude, which is our altitude adjusted for non-standard pressures, 
adjusted for non-standard temperatures and humidity. So as pilots, we need to know where our aircraft is performing. And the hotter the day is, like if we're flying in the desert, like Hazard was talking about, we're going to get high density altitude. Our our aircraft is going to be performing as if it's at a higher altitude because the temperatures are hotter and the air is less dense. And on a colder day, we're going to get better performance. Those air molecules are really close tightly together, and we're going to get better performance out of our aircraft. So on the higher density altitude days, that afterburner is going to be really useful when you need that extra kick of power in order to get airborne. I feel like you guys are the ones that need afterburner when you're at high altitude trying to land. I wish some of that boost. Right? It'd be so nice. Yeah, we we both flew in the Grand Canyon, so we'd get temperatures up to 120, yeah, plus sometimes. And uh, it was very power limiting. I did all my flight training in Prescott, Arizona. So that's 8,000 feet DA all the time and a little 180 horsepower (laughs) helicopter. That was really, really challenging to learn to fly up there, but it was definitely... It was a great place to learn because of that. It really helped teach power management and how to work yeah. with that. Yeah, low power is more scary than having too much power. So I did a little bit of flying. I want to teach my wife how to fly like small civilian aircraft. And so we took a Cessna to Sedona. And, you know, that was one of the scariest things is flying <laughs> up there with those high mountains with like no power. You know, the F-16, F-35, you, you get into trouble, just like the afterburner, and you're fine. But those those smaller aircraft, you know, you can uh, put yourself in a square corner. Yep. I'm sure it's really easy to do that, especially if you're used to flying really high-powered aircraft, and then you go into something that's less powerful. You have to be really careful when you're going to those high-density altitude airports, for sure. And like the Augusta that we fly, we have a, a limiter on it that will limit the amount of torque that we're allowed to pull. But if you find yourself in like a a hairy situation where you need to demand more power or more torque in order to not hit the ground, there's a limit override button that you can push that will allow you to go over that, go past that limit that it's set at in order to hopefully prevent a hard landing and hopefully it won't completely, you know, ruin your uh, transmission or um, cook the engine in any way. But At least we have that if, you know, we need it as an added safety feature, which is nice. You know, the F-16 was similar to that. So the F-16, we had a max power switch and uh, we got that from the F-15. And the F-15 back in the 70s was kind of, you know, we were fighting the, the Soviet Union. And so we wanted our technology to be better than theirs. And so we wanted a Mach 2.5 fighter. And so the F-15, they put a max power switch in so it could just barely get to Mach 2.5. But, you know, afterwards they would have to completely take apart the engine and fix it because it would be, you know, basically, you know, overspeeding it. And so we took that in the F-16, we, we copied the F-15's panels. And so we had that max power switch and I was always, it was wired shut. But I was always tempted to uh, to see what that thing is. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, come on, you you're know like, you want. You're to like do turning it. the camera off no, in no, the no. in the aircraft. <laughs> you're like putting your bubble gum up there. Yeah. <laughs> see, just talk to your to your maintenance guy. Like, oh, I broke the safety wire oh, on yeah, it by accident. Kidding. I don't know what happened. Uh, I was pre-flighting. It just wasn't there. <laughs> 
<laughs> just had to go Mach 2.5. <laughs> Oh, that's where it, that's where it uh, pays to, you know, have a man on, on the maintenance team that <laughs> yeah. that's got your back. So uh, one subject that always seems to come up on our interviews is ADM or aeronautical decision making. And uh, one video I particularly liked, particularly liked, that was very simple that you put out that was tips for better decision making. And something that really stood out to me, which I think on the civilian side, we really lack on is the debrief is one of the suggestions that you made. So you said that uh, in the military, you spend anywhere from two to, what, six hours? Mm -hmm. We spend a lot of time debriefing. So we'll just fly for generally about an hour and a half is, is how much fuel we have unless we're refueling in the air. And we come back and yeah, we, we debrief for a long, long time. And that's because we're doing tactics. So we're trying to do something against an adversary and so we'll assess, like, did we do everything correctly? And usually it comes down to the three errors. It comes down to an assessment error. So, you know, that could be not listening to the radio. So prioritizing something else. And then I missed a radio call. Or it could be I wasn't looking at my radar when I should have because, you know, the bad guy was on there. So it can be an assessment error. It can be a decision error. So we have a lot of tactics. So they're uh, kind of like plays in a NFL playbook. So when we see something, usually there is a tactic that's associated with that. And so we'll choose the correct tactic. And sometimes there's some small modifications, audibles that you'll make. And then the last thing is executing. So making sure that you are doing that tactic correctly. And so we try to isolate the issues into those three buckets. And yeah, we spend a lot of time debriefing, but I think anybody can apply a little bit of debriefing. I think the vast majority of people don't do any debrief. And for me, all I need are three good things, three bad things. That's that's kind of what I do with students because that's, that's what I do on the F-35. I instruct students. And so at the end of the debrief, I come up with three things that they did well and three things that they need to work on. And I think that applies to, to flying fighters. It applies to helicopters probably. It applies to, to me with my YouTube videos. So after each video, I'll just write down three things I did well, three things I need to work on. And for the most part, I mean, so far in my career, I've mostly flown small to medium helicopters that uh, only require a single pilot. And I haven't really had a job where I require a crew to be on board. So the debrief uh, falls solely on me to not be lazy at the end of the flight and to do the debrief with myself. And there's no real formal procedure of me doing that. It's basically just making mental notes in my head about the things that maybe could have been done better. If I fly with another pilot, I think, you know, Jose and I flew together the other night and, you know, we had a situation where we were, we were it was nighttime. We were coming into land at a helicopter pad at nighttime and we couldn't see where the wind was coming from, but noticed that we had a 30 knot ground speed coming in. I'm like, whoa, we got a tailwind, bro. So, you know, we aborted the landing and went around and changed the direction that we were coming in. And, you know, when we landed, we're like, okay, you know, maybe next time it wouldn't be a bad idea, especially at nighttime to do a loop around, maybe try to find the windsock with a searchlight if we can. <laughs> it's one of those things where, you know, we fly into that pad almost every single time we fly. And the winds, I would say 99% of the time, come from one direction because we're by the beach. So, you know, 
It yeah. just, they usually the are, wind pattern. they're usually pretty, pretty steady. And then once in a blue moon, they'll be coming from the north. And it's a very, very rare occasion. So we get used to coming in the same way, the same way, the same way. And that redundancy is what's going to bite you in the butt someday if you don't stay vigilant during your flight. And helicopters come with their own set of hazards for coming in with a tailwind that you don't really have in an airplane. I mean, you definitely do have hazards in an airplane coming with a tailwind, but for a helicopter, you can get in what they call settling with power or that's interchangeable with vortex ring state unless you actually get into the nitty gritty of it. And without getting into too much detail, because we're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but vortex ring state is basically when the helicopter's main rotor disc gets engulfed in its own vortices and starts settling into its downwash, which has definitely been the cause of many a helicopter hard landing slash accidents. So that's something definitely to be aware of, of knowing where the winds are coming from. Is that what happened with the, the Bin Laden raid, the helicopter that crashed? Yeah, yeah, very similar. Yeah, uh, so at least from what I read, you know, uh, the aircraft came into the compound. The vortices were bouncing off the wall, kind of got into its own wash, and kind of settled inside its own vortices yeah. in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, Crazy, huh? yeah, yeah, that, that is. <laughs> I was a Navy SEAL and been like, I'm like, damn, there goes our ride. Oh, <laughs> I, was like, yeah, I was like, so. Moment for him. So what happened was <laughs> things are not going well. <laughs> I was like, so I saw a couple donkeys back there. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a it was a U.S. aircraft. I didn't even know about this. It was a, yes. During the Bin Laden raid, they had a a few helicopters that you know dropped off the seals, and in the compound they had like I could be wrong on the number, but it was like a fifteen foot wall, something like that. Like a pretty, pretty big, like pretty big wall compound. Yeah. yeah. And the aircraft came in in the middle of the compound to drop off like the seals. But like I said, from what I read, it sounded like the vortices kind of like were getting pushed off the the wall and coming back up. So, yeah, you learned something a little little bit about helicopters. Yeah. I mean, you guys kind of know what we do. You guys fly, you know, planes, at least part time. I have no idea really how helicopters work. Yeah, it's just PFM, man. <laughs> Pure fucking magic. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, they, they don't want to fly. <laughs> You're kind of forcing a... Well, hopefully I'm staying away from them because it probably means that I ejected and I, I'm being rescued. <laughs> yeah. So hopefully yeah. that doesn't happen. Yeah, right? Exactly. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, yeah. You probably don't want to see one. <laughs> You're <yeah>. right. <laughs> I feel like in any pilot's career, we've all had really embarrassing moments that have stood out that we've looked back on and we're like, oh man, that was embarrassing. Do you have any of those moments? Uh, super embarrassing moments. A um, couple over G's, especially when the F-35 wasn't up to nine G's, a uh, couple over G's. Um, but that was, that was pretty common. So that wasn't, that wasn't too big. <laughs> I would say one funny story that I have is so I was, you know, deployed to Afghanistan and we have something called a DFAC. I don't know what it stands for, but it's our crappy cafeteria. cafeteria. And so I was flying in the middle of the night. And so I would have dinner. Dinner would essentially be my breakfast. So I had dinner and it was like foot long hot dogs, but it was like gross. Uh, but, you know, you got to eat. You're going to be in the air for six hours. So, you know, eight, eight at the DFAC. 
and went and flew my sortie. And I was hundreds of miles away. I was in the Helmand province executing a mission. And I just started feeling terrible. And I was like, man, I feel kind of sick. I think I'm going to throw up. And, you know, once I had that thought, I was like, oh, I'm going to throw up. And you're, I'm in a single seat F-16. I have my wingman who's doing stuff, but we're on a mission. And so I was like, oh, no. And I was carrying, uh, we, we carry flags for people in plastic bags. And so that was in my helmet bag. And so I took out the flag, put it in my helmet bag, and then I just threw up into this plastic bag. And it wasn't designed. It's, you know, I don't carry vomit bags because I never throw up. You know, I'm fine, you know, after flying uh, however many times I've flown in the F-16. And so I threw up into this and, like, filled it up with just, like, no. hot dogs. And it was gross. And this bag isn't designed as a vomit bag. So it doesn't have, like, the top. I can't, I can't tie it. So I just leave it in my lap, you know, kind of scooped. And uh, you know, finish finish out the rest of the mission with, oh, uh, with that in my oh lap. My that was not fun. And uh, you know, I guess I guess the guys probably gave me a little bit of hard time after that. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell you how many like vomit that, stories we've got. You, is that why they call you Hazard? <laughs> no, because that's your hazard was, bag. <laughs> I, I, just, I got named in that's your hazard bag. <laughs> <laughs> sorry sorry justin what'd you say no i just said I, I was i got the call sign hazard in 20 2011 this was this was 2016 but oh. yeah definitely not a good feeling and to have to finish the mission and you're 300 miles away from uh from any help so, oh that's man, awful yeah that sucks man i used to i used to tell my passengers when i was flying in the grand canyon that there was a thousand dollar cleanup fee yeah, <laughs> for people that puked in the helicopter that was there, was, there, there wasn't one that was your but I, would, I would i was like there's a thousand dollar you know i don't know if you guys yeah. read the fine print but there's yeah. a thousand dollar cleanup fee so if you have to puke puke in like the bags that we have i like that and if you can't puke in that go put down it in the shirt, shirt. Yeah. i'm like Dude, tuck you know? in the shirt yeah. and uh yeah i just remember I did feel bad that they did do it in their shirt, but at the same time, I'm like, I don't want to clean that up. No, you we know? don't have people for that. That's the <laughs> yeah, pilot's job. You're going in there like throw up because it's going to yeah. smell terrible. I mean, that's what the the eighth guys, the air crew flight equipment, do to the incentive flyers. So in F-16, we would fly some people in the back seat. So usually those were like maintainers that were doing really well, or sometimes they'd be local leaders, and so we'd fly them in the back seat, and every single one of them felt terrible afterwards because it's just something that the body's not used to. And like, I would mm -hmm. say almost all, most of them threw up, but all of them felt awful after awful. like an hour, hour and a half flight in the back of an F-16. Get that. That's yeah. Crazy. In my safety briefing with, in the Canyon, I would always be like, so who had fun on this trip last night? And they're <laughs> like, woo. I'm like, okay, you're going to uh, hold this bag <laughs> the yeah. entire flight. Yeah. There's a bag for you and a bag for you and a bag for you. Oh, uh, yeah, I didn't take any chances. I think there was only maybe two times that someone didn't make the bag. And it was literally, we, mm -hmm. we had a helicopter down at the Hoover Dam and we offered three-minute tours. Three minutes. Three literally, minutes. Three-minute, six-minute, and ten-minute tours where we literally Horrible. just kept the thing running. And people would come in. You'd fly them literally to take off. You'd do like a little loop. You'd come back and you'd land. It was like 40 bucks. It's for like just families who were driving, you know, back to, I don't know, wherever they were going. Um, where this, this was in, where was this, Vegas? 
Yeah, yeah. Like the Hoover Dam, the right? Dam. Yeah, I've yeah. seen those. I've seen those. That was you, find it. That, I yeah, was that was my wife. I was like, we are not getting on this like this carnival ride at the side in the middle of, middle of nowhere. This. Well, I was like, we're not doing this. I freaking hated that, dude. When we got put at the dam for the day, it was just like, no. We, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell my wife. I, I know two, two of those. But uh, <laughs> but you're right, man. I'm glad you didn't do it. Uh, waste it was, of money. I mean, for money. for people who have never been in a helicopter and can't afford, you know, two hundred, three hundred dollar ticket to go to the Grand Canyon, and they can afford a forty dollar ticket for their kid to go up. Like it was. Yeah. I mean, that's like it was cool for that. Days. It really was. It was. It was cool for that. Um, you know, families that just couldn't afford to. You know, they had six kids or whatever, you know, <laughs> and everyone yeah. gets to go, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah. that it was cool for that. Um, but, yeah, I had a woman throw up all over herself on a three minute tour. We I like landed, set it down and she just what like right just right on the seatbelt all over herself. And I was like, really? <laughs> like, three I, I believe it. There, I literally picked up. I went down, set it down and she just didn't think on a yeah. three minute tour, tour that that would be possible. But. Yeah, we we had a fan flyer who was like, I am not going to feel good on this ride. And so I, I kept it under three G's the whole time. So like really, you know, docile flight. And yeah, she was just like puking in the back. So I, I felt bad for her. Actually, the worst. And this wasn't something that I gave. But in Korea, um, we used to do something called hot pits. So we would take off, we'd go do a mission, come back still leave the jet running, stay in the cockpit. They would hook up uh, fuel to it, refuel, go fly again. And so we would do something called fan flight. So there's a difference. Incentive flights are just for you. So it's like, you're coming in and I'm like, hey, what do you want to do? You want to go see this, that? But we do a lot of fan flights where they're long for the ride. And so, you know, if they feel sick, they're stuck back there. And so I remember being the wingman for one of these rides and so we go and do a mission. We come back and we're waiting in the pits. And I look over and there's the my flight leads fam writer. And like, she's just like looking terrible, just like sleeping in the back seat just from being sick. And she had to go through the whole thing again. So I felt felt bad for her. Oh, no. Oh, man. Yeah, that's Poor sucks. girl. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of family, um, how have you found um, being a fighter pilot in the Air Force and how you've been able to balance that with your family life? I know now uh, you have a baby and a beautiful wife and um, and you now are doing your reserve mm-hmm. or you, you fly yeah. for the reserve. So I'm sure that lets you be home a little bit more, um, obviously. Um yeah, how how have you been managed to balance that up until now? Yeah, well, speaking of family, I'm gonna have to go check on my son pretty soon. But yeah, yeah, no worries. Yeah, it's um, it has been a challenge, and uh, it's been tough to be able to to prioritize doing watching him, you know, flying, doing all these other things that I'm doing as well. So I think it's been challenging, and I'm still learning the best way to do that. And for me, joining the reserves was was the big one so joining the reserves i get to stay here at luke and luke isn't a calf base so combat air force base the combat air force bases those are the ones on the front lines that's like korea that's like shaw those were the bases i was at before you're working 12 hours every single day 
Here it's a little bit less. It's like, you know, eight to 10 hour days, still, still pretty busy, but being a reservist, I fly less. So I'm only part-time. So I can kind of adjust my schedule to, um, to be able to take care of, take care of my family, especially since my wife works full-time. So she's a project manager. She's really busy. She's actually helping with the, uh, the warp speed, uh, COVID, COVID oh, rollout. Wow. So wow. Yeah. Uh, she's doing important stuff. And, uh, so yeah, I think joining the reserves really suits us and will be able to allow me to really, um, you know, spend time being a father. Oh, that's Amazing. awesome, man. Yeah. I have a few friends that are pilots, they're air force pilots in the reserves and they think it, they love it. They, I would say it's the best deal. <laughs> I feel like this is literally the best deal in the air force. There's only like I would say 10 of us total in the Air Force, so 10 reservist F-35 pilots. I'm guessing on that, but not many, and uh, it's it's awesome. I fly a couple times a week and then can spend time with the family. Wow, sounds like a sweet deal. Well, I'll let you go um, check on your kid, and thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure meeting you and hearing about all of your experiences and your expertise, and so thank you so much for coming on the show, and uh, keep doing what you're doing. If everybody, um, again, check out his YouTube channel, check him out on Instagram, Justin Fighter Pilot. Um, Yeah, so thank you so much, man. Well, thanks, Diane. This was uh, this was a lot of fun, and I actually learned stuff as well. So, I really think you guys are putting out a, a good product. And thanks for having me on. And it was nice uh, meeting you as well, Jose. Uh, you too, brother. Thank you, man. And uh, yeah, congrats on everything and your family, brother. I, I mean, right. I, I also I'm pumped that I got to hear a lot of your stuff because yeah, I like the F thirty five. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but all right, brother. Well, you take care of yourself. Yeah, all fly right, safe. Man, what a wealth of information that guy is. I, seriously, I learned so much from him on his YouTube videos. A lot of stuff I, I just really didn't know about. I mean, being a fighter pilot, not, not being a fighter pilot myself. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was one. Maybe would, in another life. <laughs> man, I, if I were to fly any type of airplane, it would be like the Warthog. You know oh, what yeah. I'm talking about? The A-10? Mm-hmm. You know, the... Yeah, we've oh, talked about God. that before. <laughs> yep. Stand by that. I stand by that. <laughs> That'd be pretty intense, man. But yeah, well, let's uh, let's talk about the interview here. Uh, we talked about um, a good debrief. Yeah, you know, I think having a good debrief is critical as far as you just doing it on your own as a pilot, or you as an instructor talking to your students. Uh, whatever the case is, having a good debrief essentially is a good way to communicate things that were positive and things that were negative along your flight mission. Totally. So just building on that and pointing out the certain things that you can improve on, I think can go a long way. All right, all right, all right. What more can we learn about the debrief? I know it seems like we're beating a dead horse here, but there are a couple things that we can still talk about. So what does a good debrief do for us? Of course, it's going to help us minimize future mistakes and become the ultimate qualified pilot that we all strive to be. We're all human. We make mistakes. So first of all, you got to commit to being 100% honest with yourself in the debrief. And this can be for your eyes only. No one else has to see this. This can be for your own performance and your own improvement. 
So how can you perform one? It can be in your head, which is usually what I do, but a more effective approach would be to write it down and keep a flight journal, which actually I think I'm going to strive to do. It's going to be one of my goals this year. I'm going to start a journal. Start by simply asking yourself questions about how you felt the flight went. Hey, Diane, how'd you think the flight went? Oh, you know what? I think it went pretty well. A couple things I could have done better. Let's try to do that better next time, et cetera, et cetera. You can also structure it a little bit more. You could pre-write yourself a debrief form. Be objective. Don't get emotional about it. And give yourself a fair assessment. So one thing that Hazard did that was a really good idea was to just write three things down that you think went well and three things that you think could have been improved on during your flight. Or don't, you know, do what makes you feel like a free woman or man. But do what you can to fly safe out there. I love you guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to Hazard for being there for us today. And have a great rest of your week. We'll catch you in a few weeks. 